Welcome everybody to the Haunted Hacker podcast um, birthday edition. So today is my 48th birthday. I feel like I'm still 25. I look like I'm 60, um, but that's okay. I'm good with that. Uh, so a little bit of news. Um, speaking for ICE in January, uh, speaking in South Africa in January, and my first screenplay just got uh, recorded and uh on video and it comes out early in the spring uh, with Alyssa Knight and working on my second screenplay uh, for another company. Um, so it should be, should be good times. Uh, tonight we have Chase Cunningham and uh, he has a really interesting background and uh, I'll let him uh, talk about his background. And other than that, let's uh, kick it off. Chase, it's a, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast tonight. Um, I looked over your background and, and looked at some of the amazing things that you've done and you continue to do. And uh, it looks like a huge contribution to the industry as a whole, uh, which is really awesome to see, especially when, you know, in some areas, the industry really lacks and really suffers. Uh, so why don't you give us a little bit of background and, and tell us about yourself and, and your journey. Sure. Uh, so joined, uh, joined the Navy at uh, 17. Um, actually joined as a diesel mechanic um, and found out really quickly that I didn't like checking the same oil on the same piece of machinery 700 times to make sure that there was still oil in it. And uh, luckily, uh, through a set of fortuitous circumstances, cross-rated over to CT. Um, and after I did that, uh, I got medically retired from the Navy in 2012-ish. Um, wound up working a bunch for the federal government um, after that, um, specifically in uh, classified space. And then uh, work my way over to Forrester Research and ultimately uh, where I'm at right now um, at the uh, Aracom software. So, I mean, I've, I've been through the ringer on, uh, you know, I was, I was doing information assurance back when it was IA before it was cyber. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember the IA visit that used to come out and we'd have to respond to those all the time. Pretty yep. interesting stuff. So what, what was your first rate again? I, I didn't catch that. Uh, I, was a, I was an EN, an engine man. Oh, and then what was your crypto rate? Uh, CTR. CTR. Cool. Yeah, I was a CTT and then I switched from uh, T branch to the Navy's new cyber warfare rate, the CTN. Um, yeah, I was an R, but I basically did in stuff the whole time. I just never converted over because promotion was better as an R. So, yeah. And back back then, when, when I first got into uh, in, they didn't even have a school for it. You basically sat for a board and they asked you a bunch of questions and either yay or nay. Um, so tell me in your time during the uh, the Navy, what was your favorite part of doing crypto? Uh, I mean, I thought the the most interesting part for me was just the the way that we did mission um, and the way that you were, you know, it, it was it was always interesting to me to be like, you know, getting actual valuable stuff and putting it in the hands of the people that needed it to do um, kinetic operations. I mean, that was that was just always crazy to me to be like you know someone would need something and you just kind of go okay i'll go get it and then you bring it back and go here's your intel yeah that and then you'd see the the outcome of the operation which is really cool um and then going to school in quarry station is one of my favorite parts of my military career um, for those of you who don't know what uh quarry station is it's an intelligence command where they teach uh crypto techs and some other some other rates um, but it's it's a old world war ii airport or hangar um and the grinder is massive and, <laughs> and doing the runs on the grinder all the time um, i spent some time there and i spent some time at little creek with uh at the amphibious base with teams um doing swick stuff which is really cool 
Um, so what took you from being a chief in the Navy into the cyber industry? It, was that a direct transition for you or was there a period of time where you were just like trying to decide if that's really what you want to pursue or how'd that go? Well, I was uh, lucky that when I was going to retire, um, a friend of mine who was a retired senior chief had a contract that was a uh, government cyber work. Um, and he basically said, like, you know, the day you get your papers, you know, take the uniform off and put your civvies on and come work for me. Um, and I did the, I did a con that contract with him for about a year. Uh, and it was just, uh, you know, made, made the transition kind of easier. Um, you know, it's people don't realize how much your life changes when you come out of the military and you've got to wrap your head around how to not be, a, you know, a chief and whatnot. Um, so that was, that was just great. And uh, like, like I say, I mean, I, I think people think I'm joking, but I mean, my whole career has just been through, luckily through meeting really great people and having connections. And, you know, it's not because I've done anything awesome. It's just people around me happen to be great. Yeah, absolutely. That's kind of the same way it went for me. I was at uh, Joint Force Intelligence Command and was about to get out and some guys from uh, the GCCC over at USGFCOM picked me up as soon as I got out. Like I literally didn't have a day lapse between you know navy and civilian and i thought that was really cool um they sweep us up pretty quick and you know i hadn't i hadn't retired um but what i found was when i went to bethesda and went to the job fair there uh and realized that i could take my clearance my experience and make like four times as much it was really hard for me to you know look that in the face and, and stay in the military so i, I got out pretty quick uh, but I did a total of 13 years, but, um, yeah, I mean, th there's so much value in what we're trained and some of it doesn't, uh, directly translate to civilian work. Um, but fortunately with, with all of the stuff that, that we learn in crypto and, and on the job, um, it, it works out really well. And for those of you listening who are contemplating going into the military or looking for, you know, a way to get into cyber, uh, best way I found to get into cyber is going in the military and they will teach you everything you need to know plus more. Um, and it's a good, it's a good environment. Um, T branchers and, and CTs in general get treated a little bit differently than the rest of the Navy. Uh, you know, we don't put in a lot of elbow grease and, and people tend to let us get on the ship first and off the ship first. And, you know, it's a, it's a different lifestyle. I think working in the skiff, how did you enjoy working in the skiff? Oh, I I, I love I love the skiff because uh, it was always great um, to be in that place where you had you know uh, no one could kind of bother you and I mean you could you were you were plugged in but you were unplugged um, and because you I mean you can't even take your cell phone in there right you know and, uh, and it was also fun doing some of the uh, the closed access stuff where the CEO would be like I need to know what you're doing and they'd be like nope sorry and you shut the door in her face like you don't you don't have need to know so go away. Yeah, that, that was pretty interesting to me, too. Um, the fact that a lot of our missions that, that I worked on were for the NSA and not mm -hmm. for the Navy. And you could tell there were some people that were ship's company that, that were really kind of perturbed about, you know, guys coming on and jumping off really quick and then just not having to, you know, stand watch or anything like that. But we did our own watch inside the skiff, which was different. And they didn't yeah, see that. Watch long, 12 hours on, you know. <laughs> 12 hours is long, especially when you're sitting there with, you know, cans on whatever else. Yeah. But what was really cool is like, I heard, I heard from other people that had been stationed on ships as CTs that, you know, sometimes the skiff it, or even, you know, the birthing, it, it was no big surprise to see like an Xbox or a PlayStation going. 
Um, you know, a lot of guys entertain themselves that way, but, you know, I didn't spend much time on a ship. Most of my time was, uh, catching a taxi over there and, and back, um, and really short trips, uh, direct support for different groups. So when you got into cybersecurity after the military, what was the hardest part for you to transition to and from? For me, it was just the knowing what to predict, routine, structure, and then going to a commercial workplace where you didn't really know what was going to happen next. I think the hardest part for me initially was um, realizing like you, you can't approach it the same way you did in the military, you know, in the in the military, especially if you're, uh, you know, staff NCO and above, you know, you, you say something and it's going to happen. And I mean, if it doesn't happen, you have a recourse that's usually pretty, uh, I guess you'd call it uh, vicious. And in the civilian world, it just doesn't work that way. You have to, you have to dial it back, um, learning how to do politics, you know, learning how to kind of um, be a, be a uh, normal sort of job civilian side is not an easy thing um when you've when you've come out of like you said the structure and the um the you know the attitude of getting things done it, it's i think the hardest part for me was learning how to learning how to wait yeah yeah definitely you know they always said though you know the navy is is standby to standby most of the time um but when it wasn't standby to standby it was full speed ahead and high intensity uh and i think that in the industry that we're in now, um, a lot of that accountability isn't there. Uh, definitely a lot of the structure I think is lacking in some places and I miss the camaraderie. Um, so, you know, you get a little bit of that in the industry and, and, you know, I've been in it for 20 plus years and made some really good friends and, and a very small group of core people who've been around for a very long time. But other than that, you don't really gain that camaraderie and it's hard to tell, like, you know, you meet someone at work and, and, in the Navy, I know the guy sitting next to me has got my back. But in the commercial world, it's not always like that. Um, so I do miss that. So being a civilian, what is your, I guess, most exciting part of your job? Or what have you done that, that really makes you stop and say, you know, I really dig being in cybersecurity? I mean, I think that this is the, this is, in my opinion, the most important sector in technology right now. I mean, if you think about it, we're we're seeing implications that are global in nature. I mean, we're, you know, cyber work is literally um, doing things that are helping either, you know, bring national level capability up or in some cases down. Um, I mean, I, 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 I really, I think that the stuff that we do matters and that's, that's the best part of any job. If you ask me is like, you know, money, whatever money will take care of itself, but doing something that actually matters, that's more important. The mission the the doing things that are um you know i mean we're we're engaged in i guess you could call it combat in some ways yeah and a lot of people don't understand that, that this cyber war is not something new um it's been around for for many years we've been fighting on many fronts for a long time it's just that you know the, the civilian world just didn't know what we were doing um and you know another thing too is you know i hear in the industry people pointing fingers at, at different countries and you know, engaging in cyber war and stuff like that. But what they don't understand is every country's involved. It's not mm -hmm. just Russia. It's not just China. It's the U.S. It's Brazil. It's, you know, all over the place. Um, and they, they don't understand that. You know, if, if something happens, the first thing in most people's minds, most security companies is, is it Russia 
Is it China? Is it North Korea or Iran? But they don't take into into I guess they don't take into consideration the whole geopolitical tension between different countries bleeds out. There's a whole geopolitical factor that that goes into cybersecurity that I don't think a lot of people get and a lot of companies don't have a grasp on. And I think once we understand um, how geopolitics plays into cybersecurity and uh, different economies, I think that we'll be able to get a better handle on controlling some of that, that theater and some of that risk. Yeah, I mean, I do a lot of work on Capitol Hill. And I mean, those, those folks up there are starting to get the, um, the point that this, uh, this stuff is, is real and it's not just a bunch of chicken littles running around screaming about it. I mean, there's, you know, every time there's a ransomware attack that is significant, it gets eyebrows up. I, I think we're seeing some action from the current administration that's actually useful. Um, but like you say, it's, um, I, I remind people of that too. Like, I, you know, I tell them, I'm like, I said, the, U- the U.S. is an APT. You know, everybody talks about Russia and China, whatever. It's like, yeah, we do the same stuff. I mean, you, yeah. you're just better at keeping it out of the news. <laughs> right. right. You know, I went to, uh, I got interviewed for a job at uh, Pro Systems one time. And I wasn't really sure what the, uh, the role was. I just, I needed a job and thought, you know, I'll go check it out. So they called me in for an interview and they take me into the malware development lab. And I thought, wait a minute, why is Pro Systems involved in creating malware? And then I realized I put the two and two together and I realized that Lockheed Martin also had a malware creation lab. And it's all contributing to the cyber war and the, the cyber theater. Um, so there's a lot of that that goes on. And, and you know, it's, it's really interesting when you look at it from different points of view. You know, I've talked to FBI. I've talked to former CIA agents, um, a guy that was in the CIA doing technical uh, stuff. And, you know, everybody has a different opinion. But what's funny is all those agencies still have the same, I guess, uh, idea about the whole holistic picture is that, you know, as long as we have geopolitical tension, that cyber war is not going to stop anytime soon. The spear. I mean, I think now I mean that's... Yeah. Um... That's you, that's how you, the cold war didn't go cold. It just went digital. Right. Yeah, I totally agree. And when you look at Cuba, um, Cuba has been messing around with the infrastructure just recently. Um, and that's a direct, a direct hit from what we were doing with, uh, you know, down in Cuba. And, you know, we got a little upset when people were getting Havana syndrome, and, mm-hmm. you know, and Cuba has been playing that cat and mouse game for a really long time. Um, so tell me about your website. I, I saw your website. And I saw some stuff you do, but it's not, it's not. I haven't put any work into it. It's so bad, but yeah, it's on my list of things to do. But, but what you do behind that website is really interesting and really beneficial. Why don't you explain to us kind of about that, that whole area of your life and and what you're doing there? Uh, Well, I mean, I, I do a lot of work in, um, I I do a lot of pro bono stuff in cyber, um, but I, I'm really trying on the, uh, far end of it like my podcast and the books and stuff is really just to kind of keep it as um honest as i possibly can um usually to a fault uh, and then just getting that in front of you know folks who i think think care and listen um, i get a lot of positive feedback about um not you know not taking money from vendors and and pushing stuff as far as um, the, the truth of what's going on so i i mean that's that's a pretty core focus for me uh and i i don't plan on changing that at any, any time. I mean, I, um, I think the last time I was looking at stuff, it was, uh, you know, a few thousand folks listen regularly, which is good. That's really good. Um, you know, I, I've been working with TechStrong for 
a year now. Uh, they they host the podcast on their on their TV show, uh, Digital Anarchist. And I think that you know once you get that reach, you know it's really important to be that that transparent, you know, straightforward, no bullshit. This is what's going on. Um, and you know, just like anything else, some people will enjoy it. Some people, you know, won't. And you know, there'll be naysayers and stuff like that. But you know, it doesn't stop me. I, I still do what I believe in. I think that's really important. This industry is don't sell out and, you know, just be who you are and try to give back. And that's kind of the gist of this podcast that and give a history on cyber so that later on down the road, you know, there's a legacy that they can pick up and, and watch the video and say, oh, this is what it was like back then, you know, because there's a lot of kids coming in now that don't necessarily know what happened, you know, in 2006 or 2005 as far as cyber goes. Um, and I kind of want to leave a, a record. So tell me about your podcast. I, I haven't got a chance to listen to that yet, but I'm really interested. Yeah. It's a Dr. Zero trust, um, basically. And I mean, the, I kind of keep it revolving between, um, uh, I try and cover the news when there's significant news. I was doing it. I was doing the news every week and then I was like, well, probably a little too much. Um, just on, you know, there's so much moving parts and by the time I could do analysis and whatever I couldn't keep up so I'm doing it like every other week but then uh I do have a lot of guests on there too that uh, are just anybody and everybody that I can and is willing to talk with me I mean I've had I've had sales people on there I've had generals I've had you know uh, folks that work on Capitol Hill it, um just whoever wants to talk about something that's valuable that someone else might get some value about and as long as they're willing to be honest then I'll bring them on yeah. uh, and I you know, I think that that's, uh, I think that's, that's, I'm, I'm proud of that because it's, uh, I'm, it's as real as I can be. Yeah. Who's been your most uh, interesting guest you had on? Um, gosh, you know, I think I, I had a lot of really good conversation with a friend of mine, uh, who's a Chinese cyber analyst, um, works for recorded future. Uh, her stuff was really useful uh, and she was able to kind of walk through how they're, you know, looking at the, the, the initiatives that China is taking. And I mean, because she's an expert in that space, just her knowledge of it is so, you know, so vast, it's super useful. Yeah. I find that, you know, some of the guests that I have on, I, I always learn something from the guests that I have on every single one of them. Um, and I think that's really important too, is, you know, I try to get people who are either more experienced than I am or have more, I guess, uh, intense or, or interesting story. Um, you know, and someone who has, who wants to get out there and put their name out there and, you know, help people. Uh, but I think m one of my more interesting ones was I had to get up really early in the morning one time and speak to uh, a retired IDF cyber, cyber warfare um, leadership from Israel mm -hmm. and Dr. Oren Eaton. And it was a really interesting conversation, really eye-opening uh, to hear his stance on cyber war and the U.S. and Israel's uh, connection and, and relationship was really interesting. Uh, yeah, really, they don't play. They don't no, play <laughs> no, no, they don't. The the uh, the question about Stuxnet naturally came up, and, and there was some odd silence that went on. But uh, it, it was really, really interesting. So, where do you see cybersecurity going in the next, let's say, ten years? I don't want to say five years because ransomware is just going to continue. So, let's look past ransomware. Do you think we'll get past that part or do you think it'll evolve into something more dangerous? Uh, I think, I think it's going to evolve into more sort of multifaceted problems. Like it's kind of a singular issue right now. And honestly, 
Um, you know, I tell people all the time, like ransomware shouldn't be the problem it is. Like it's it's usually because you have pretty crappy basic security and you're not doing the things that will, you know, you're relying on antivirus when ransomware doesn't care about antivirus. It invokes stuff that's native to the operating system. So your AV is not going to catch it. So stop. You know, I think that's uh, part of the problem. But I think that it's going to continue to evolve um, as it goes forward. I think we're going to see more kind of combined attack vectors where you'll have um, you know, social media is going to play into that and, and you're going to have um, an evolution of those those things as the avenues of delivery for the new stuff. And it's um, more technology is not a good thing right now. We do so much speed that the speed feeds this beast and it's it, it doesn't get any better um, anytime soon. I mean, the good thing for those of us in cyber is we're not going to be unemployed. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I've been doing a lot of incident responses lately and I put out a, a, a post on LinkedIn, I guess it was yesterday, and the five common denominators of ransomware and, and those types of events. And I mean, when you look at the people who are getting hit and the problems that, that are existing, they're not much different than 10 years ago. Um, people still don't patch. People still don't update. People still don't communicate. Um, and I think as an industry, if we want to defeat a problem like ransomware, there's going to have to be more honesty. Um, people are going to have to come out when they get breached and say, hey, this is what happened. This is the lessons we learned. Uh, this was our failure. And this is how we got out of it uh, in order to pass that knowledge to other companies that, that may be threatened by that same type of uh, ransomware attack. But as an industry, we're so critical about we don't want anybody to see how ugly our baby is that you know we don't want to reach out and help people. Um, and I think a prime model for that um, was why I went into the military the second time was 9-11. And that was a communication failure and intelligence failure. And I think that as an industry, we suffer from that same problem on a daily basis. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the other issue that I have, too, is we've created this uh, self-licking ice cream cone of misery, right, where people continue to rely on things that, are, that aren't dealing with I mean, I, I think about it like the physics of the problem. Like it, it, it drives me bonkers that there's this giant marketing, massive effort and money being made around training people out of, you know, clicking stuff. Mm. That's, I think it's a waste. I think it's um, counter to what actually makes a difference. The data says that I'm not wrong. Like the same people continue to just click stuff. So, you know, you could, you could glue their hands to the table and they'll click it with their nose. Um, so we should... I think that those types of things are, are problems in the industry and it's only going to, it only perpetuates the actual issue. You know, um, I, you need a technical control. I can't rely on people not to be people. And I mean, when your job is to be online and to interact with content, but I'm going to train you not to interact with content, like, come on. Right. Right. The, the whole idea of telling people don't click on something and then you as a company send out mass amounts of emails asking people to click on links. I mean, it kind of defeats the whole purpose, you know, it's like the blind leading the blind. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's asinine, but I mean, there's this massive mark. I mean, there's what, what are they, uh, there's a couple of billion dollar valuation companies out there and that's what they do. And it's like, you've, you might as well have taken that billion dollars and flushed it. Yeah. And like proof point, proof point was supposed to be the solution to that. Um, and Mimecast, but mm -hmm. I, I don't see that solving anybody's problems. Um, I worked with, both platforms for a while and the attackers know that these technology that this technology exists and more than likely one or two of those groups have worked in for those companies 
Um, you know, and so they know the controls and they know how to get around. And I try to explain to people, it's not a technology problem. The, the technology, we can solve that problem or that issue easily. You know, we can defeat different measures, but we can't, we can't remold the way people think. Um, and really, it's a people problem. You know, the, the well, computers, computers do well on themselves, but the people, you let them go and they create chaos. Yeah. And I mean, the, the other issue I have is that there's uh, like, I, I get it and I agree, you should train your people. Like we need to know, just like I need to know how to be safe when I drive my car, but I don't need to know necessarily how an internal combustion engine works to get in the car and go somewhere. It, there's safety controls in there that are built in that will hopefully save me if something bad happens. We have this you know, dumb way of approaching it where we think we can make everybody into a cybersecurity person. And then we go, well, I don't want to hurt their feelings if I put a block on them on the internet. Like, no, that's, I'm protecting my business. If you're, if you're Johnny or Sally clicks a lot, you know, then I'm, I'm putting controls in front of you, whether you like it or not. It's not, it's not mean. It's not meant to hurt their feelings. It's because I don't want you taking my business down. Right. And, and I'll tell you who's probably one of the most uh, guilty in an environment in a corporation of that same thing is uh, the C-suite, especially the CEO, you know, tell him that you're going to block him and it becomes an issue. Um, And they have the most wide open connection. And they're usually the ones who attract the negativity as far as, you know, threats and risk go. Yeah. I, I, I I interviewed with a pretty big company to be their CISO. And part of my interview was like, I said, well, can I come out there and kind of, you know, see how you do things. And after five days of walking around and seeing how they run stuff and telling them what I wanted to put in place, and they were like, well, I don't think we could do that. I said, I'm not taking your job. I mean, and it was a it was a really nice, you know, pay bump for me. But I was like, no, you're not you're not crucifying me because you can't do your stuff. I mean, it's if you don't put controls in place, then it, uh, I'm not going to be your CISO. <laughs> yeah, that's that's crazy. And I see that quite a bit. Uh, you know, it, I, I was interviewing for position, I guess, about a year ago. And uh, I had a meeting with the CISO and this guy had not read my resume, had not done, you know, searching on the internet, in the OSINT, trying to figure out who I was and strictly just had no clue. And when, before the interview, I went to his social media, I looked at everything. I looked at what school he went to, you know, what sports he played, who his friends were, who his family was. I knew everything about this guy. But he didn't even take a, a minute to read my resume. And to me, that was game over. Because if you don't take a minute to read somebody's resume before, before an interview and you're the CISO, I'm not going to follow you. Because chances are you're going to rely on everybody else to do everything. And you're just going to sit back and basically be a figure. And that's I, I look at CISOs like that that are just holding spaces like the same people on Capitol Hill have been there for 30, 40 years and done nothing. Yeah, it's uh, uh, I, I like I said, I do so much. I do so much consulting on Capitol Hill that um, there are the people there that I do run into, and that they're, they'll be like on one of the subcommittees around technology and cyber, and it's like you you folks don't know this from you know metaphysics, and why are you the one writing this legislation? I I went round and round with a, a senator on drone security, and he just could not understand that his legislation didn't make a lick of difference. Like it's a, it's a law and his, his point on the defensive side of it was, well, we have laws that say that you can't do that. And I was like, yes, but technology, what 
technically stops me from doing it. Right. There's right. laws that say I can't speed too, but I speed. Exactly. It, back in 2008, uh, they did a documentary called Hackers of People Too. And uh, I, I was interviewed for that documentary and there's a segment on EFF and cyber law. And one of my comments, but even back in 2008 was the wrong people are making the legislation and the laws regarding cyber. They're old guys on Capitol Hill that have never touched technology, don't understand the technology, but yet are writing the bills and the legislation for that technology. Um, and it, not much has changed. You know, I, I don't think, you know, looking at the way the government works, yeah, they've made some advances, but they're very slow and very small. Um, you know, I was talking to Jack Scott a couple of weeks ago, and they were talking about uh, a reform that would require people to disclose breaches within 72, 72 hours. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like that, that does nobody any good, you know, like that's past the point it's already, you know, gone. Um, but you know, at least they're looking at ways to make the ecosystem better, the cyber ecosystem. Um, but you know, as far as infrastructure goes, I think Obama said it during his administration, an attack on the infrastructure is a declaration of war. And so far I have not seen anybody pick up a rifle and go to town over any of the infrastructure yet. Um, and I know it's been hit. Uh, I think Israel is the only one who has really done a kinetic attack based yeah, on the cyber thing. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was like the Israelis, man. They don't play. No, I thought that was pretty epic. I was like, wow, they, they researched where the hack came from and, and the, the traffic and confirmed it and then just annihilated the whole building. Like, yeah. I mean, that, that sends a message, you know? Yeah. I, I, I mean, you know, if you, uh, if you approach, well, you know, what's the, the nuclear side is mutually assured destruction. You know, I think in the cyber side, if you're taking actions that are uh, going to cause, you know, national infrastructure outages and affect economies and life as well, um, I'm perfectly fine with sending a JDAM into a building, you know. Absolutely. If, yeah, if I think that's... Know, came from and you you're validated and whatever else you know drop it from thirty thousand feet and call it an afternoon yeah i think that's what's going to have to happen in the future uh, because a lot of the i guess red apt groups uh, are starting to band together and you know i saw that transition you know about five or six years ago on the commercial side where i started to see different apt groups start to band up together and work together uh and this last ir i did a couple ago, um, I actually saw an APT group and a hacking group get together and hit a, hit a company. And I thought, you know, that's really strange. So I, I started thinking about it. And this is my theory is that now ransomware attacks that involve APT groups um, are more for intelligence gathering. Uh, the, the financial gain, yeah, they make it look like a ransomware attack. Yeah, they, they put up a number, but usually that's the group that helped them get in controlling that, you know, saying, hey, I want this much money for the ransom. But the APT group is just sitting there collecting data constantly. Um, and I think that, you know, some of the data that I saw passing by was not on the company itself, but on the individuals, um, which was really interesting. It's like uh, back when China uh, hit the VA and was looking at building dossiers of specific individuals. And I think that's still going on, but on a wider scale. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's... Uh... I mean, the, the the thing for the national organizations that are doing this is you have they have a great veil uh, of the plausible deniability with the ransomware gangs. So I mean, if 
you know, I mean, personality flaw, right? I always think like the bad guy. If I was them, I'd sure as hell be doing that because it's a great way to do whatever you want and not, not get busted. Um, and yeah, I'll finance your ransomware op uh, as long as I get my intel on the back end. Yeah, and there's a lot of those uh, ransomware gangs now that are more like uh, tech companies from Silicon Valley. I mean, they're set up call centers and everything. You know, buy their buy the remote access tool and, and get access. And you know, you got a problem, call help, call the help desk. You know, yeah, it's, yeah, they have good help. They have good help desk. Yeah, yeah, ones that actually answer the phone. Uh, but yeah, so you know that 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 brings up some interesting conversation about where cyber is going, and you know the the I guess the cyber war theater. Um, and a lot of our weapons too, w- which I think is really interesting about how we're so concerned about space right now. Uh, and that's another um, battlefield that I think is going to erupt in the next 10, 15 years, um, you know, cyber actions in space. And the whole idea of Space Force, I think, was really interesting that they came out of the blue and wanted to form that along with the unmanned Air Force, uh, um, I guess, shuttle. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, I think space spaces where uh, kind of the, the future state war is going to be fought. I mean, because that's valuable real estate, even though it's not real estate, you know, and then being able to fly over and have um, your ability to do intel and push your uh, efforts where you want them is, is what warfare is all about. Yeah. And space is, space is the last sort of spot where... Um, the rush is going on to get up there and and it's every every nation that can is figuring out a way to get a capability in that space oh yeah it, it just it just becomes the, the evolution of you know where where warfare goes you don't need to put boots on ground anymore you know if i can if i can do stuff from space i can still influence things i and i you, you mentioned the future of cyber i think i think it goes honestly a little bit cooler but i think it becomes more of an influence game than an actual kinetic sort of operation like you you win more that way yeah totally and you know we were talking a couple podcasts ago about um actively going after apts and and ransomware gangs and when i say active i mean like hackbacks and stuff like that but even more even more so like if they can identify an apt and an apt's area of operation and pin that down, why can't we have a paramilitary type organization that has skills in that, in that arena to physically go in and take care of the APT? You know, that, that's one thing that, that escapes me is the fact that we have these special forces, we have these special capabilities, but we're not deploying them like we should. And I'm not sure if that's a fear-based, I guess, decision, you know, to, to not want to instigate it to the next level, or if we're just not ready for that type of warfare yet. I mean, I think that the issue from knowing the folks that I've known on the, on, on the Hill, it's really that there is such a uh, concern and it's a valid concern around the risk of getting it wrong, you know, because false flag operations are a real thing. And if I know what I'm doing, I can sure make it look like the Iranians did it when it was actually the Russians or vice versa and whatever. And they're, I mean, it's, you know, it's hesitant to, to do that, that type of op because of, of those issues. So I don't, I don't know when we're going to get to that stage. Um, but then again, you know, a lot of those things that are happening lately, they don't really bother to hide that much because they're not concerned about any, you know, repercussions. I mean, what's the downside really? Yeah, there, there are no repercussions. And, you know, that's me, like who cares about <laughs> sanctions? 
all that does is make them go after uh, cryptocurrency. So yeah, you know, we saw North, we saw North Korea and China get sanctions and all of a sudden they start hacking people's Bitcoin wallets and, and the blockchain. So, I mean, th- those have never really bothered anybody's sanctions. Um, but, and that brings it to question, you know, another big topic is, so the internet is a global system. Um, and we all reside on the internet. Um, why is it that we have, people in different countries being prosecuted or not being prosecuted for the same cyber, I guess, cyber crime. Um, in my eyes, I think we need more of an Interpol type situation uh, where it's a global court. They're the ones who, who issue the warrants. They're the ones who try the cyber criminals. That way we don't get into an arena where, well, that guy's from the GRU or, you know, this, this hacker is in, you know, a country we can't touch. Um, it's a global crime to me. And I, the U.S. is looking at it as, well, you're offending us. No, you're offending the whole Internet. Um, so I think we need a, a you know, Internet court, like an Interpol type court for the Internet. I mean, I don't disagree with you, but then, you know, um, those of us that have worked in those joint places, you know how much of an absolute shenanigan it is trying to get anything. I mean, it's, it's bad enough to get anything done with just the U.S. You try and throw partners and everyone else in there and it gets even more convoluted and, uh, becomes even more difficult. So I, I agree with you in theory. I think um, it's just, it's just so many moving parts and uh, having joint interagency intercountry sort of uh, collaboration is, is not a fun thing to be a part of. Yeah. Yeah, definitely not. Um, <clears throat> another thing too, like SpaceX is really interesting. to me, And uh, I just got um, a connection with the head of cyber for SpaceX and, I, you know, I, I sat there and thought about it. When I saw his profile, and I saw what he did and, and how he started out in SpaceX, and where he went to become, you know, the director of security. And I, I started thinking, you know, Elon Musk really has his shit together. Um, and I think, it's, I think it's a mixture of his IQ plus working with government agencies that have kind of guided him to where they want him to go, um, which is really interesting. Like the International Space Station, I saw a documentary uh, yesterday about the ISS. And um, the question of, is it more of a research platform or is it more of a military project or military command that, that will you know, show itself sometime in the next 20 years as being a multi, multi-joint like, task force for different countries for the security of space? Well, I mean, the, the Russians already flexed a little bit on that when they uh, accidentally sort of screwed up their satellite demolition that wound up sending junk and made them remove or move the uh, ISS on the fly. Um, so that was, I, I, I think a lot of times we see stuff that comes over in the news and people go, Oh, that's interesting. But in reality, like there's flexing going on and you should look at it as, you know, was that a flex? And I, I mean, I think that that's becoming more clear all the time. Yeah. And you and I are both from the Navy and I saw a, um, an incident where I, I think it was a frigate. It might've been a frigate actually went off course and collided with another ship. Mm-hmm. And you and I both know how stringent, you know, the GPS guidance and, and, you know, the mission mission coordinates are, and it's not something that, you know, they easily fall off course and end up colliding with another ship. I mean, it's kind of hard to miss a huge Navy ship. Um, my thought is that, you know, even maritime is being affected, but nobody's talking a lot about it. Yeah, well, I, I mean, there's a whole bunch of stuff going on with uh, what's, you know, the, the Taiwanese Strait and 
Um, one of my buddies that's a senior chief, you know, he, he was on a ship that was out there um, in the strait. And uh, he said they had, uh, they had a, a Chinese destroyer rolling r- r- right up on them. Um, and he's, you know, he's, he said they were at, at battle station. He's like, dude, we were, we were 30 seconds away from starting, you know, starting something real. Um, and they just wound up backing off. But I mean, those types of things are, they're, they're, they're calculated uh, moves, you know, and I think, uh, I think where we're at right now, just nationally is that our adversaries see that we're in a weakened position because of COVID um, and they're, they're doing what they can to get away with it. And they are, they are I mean, there's 175,000 troops on the border of Ukraine right now. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you have that going on and you also have China wanting to grab Taiwan, you know, and it's, that's a concerted effort as well. You, you know, Putin and, and China talked before this all started. Um, you know, it's, it's no, no mystery about how they operate, <clears throat> you know, and I don't think it's, it, yeah, I think they see this as weakened because of the pandemic, but I think even more so after January 6th that, you know, they, they realize that our government is not, is not singing like a professional choir right now, I guess. Yeah. Well, I mean, our, just our, the whole last few years have you know, continued to pile on top of themselves and um, it doesn't seem like anything's really moving into a better place. And now, I mean, we're at a, the, the, the economically, right. This is what really concerns me is, is the stock markets at an all time high, but you don't have the people putting the money into the market to actually make that valuation real. So when does it crash? And I mean, that it, it has to happen. It's just, you know, when. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, with all the variants coming out, I, I can kind of foresee like a, a new variant coming out. That's a little bit more lethal. Um, and I think that will suck the air right out of the stock market uh, and people will be right back to where we were when it first, when the pandemic first came out and people were losing jobs and homes, uh, which is really unfortunate. I was actually in London uh, when the pandemic hit. Uh, it hadn't reached the U.S. yet, but we we're on lockdown in London. I ended up catching it in London and it was a it was a different story over there. Um, you know, I turn on the TV over there and, and look at what's going on in the U.S., and it was like party central spring break and people on the beach partying. And in London, we were all locked down. Like you could not leave the house. Uh, and they were very strict about that. Uh, and even it now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Uh, and then you see Australia with the same issues that, that we had, uh, you know, they they actually were fighting government on lockdown uh, because, you know, I, I don't know who's looking out for our best interest anymore when it comes to guidance about uh, health and, and, uh, you know, those mandates come from the government. I'm really not sure who to trust or, or, or whose advice to take. Um, because to me, it seems like it changes daily. And funny enough is that those changes actually affect the economy. They affect cybersecurity. They affect a lot of things. You know, yeah. dur- during the pandemic, we all worked from home. And we, no longer were we bringing our, our own device, the BYOD, but we were bringing the company into our homes. And it put a lot of companies at risk. Did you see any after effects of that? I mean, we're still seeing them all the time. Like uh, it's uh, everybody's part of their network and everybody's your crap at your house is going to the company. And I mean, your kids are doing stuff on your network and your VPN directly into the infrastructure. So, you know, everybody's worried about, um, you know, COVID spreading, but COVID is at least something that's controllable. This, when you're piped right in, whatever infection you have on your system, that's going right there. And it's, uh, I mean, I've like you, I've done so much IR and sort of 
work on with with folks on getting past that it's it's not going to end anytime soon i um, I am a thousand percent confident there's a whole lot of companies out there that don't know that they've got something going on right now. I can tell you firsthand that there's quite a few because some of the IRs that I've, I've looked at and some of the consulting I've done um, going back to, you know, through the logs and looking at the, the first interaction uh, was like a year. You know, how, how do you not know that long? You know, working in a SOC and managing a SOC, you know, we have an MDR and I manage that. And attacks like that we're catching like two hours you know how is it that people can't detect that in a year you know and that tells me they're 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 either not following their security practices and, and secure development life cycle or they're just not concerned like one of the common denominators i think is a lot of these companies are smaller and they have the idea of it'll never happen to me um you know they see the ransomware and they see these big events on tv and they're like oh that's you know those are big companies I'm not worried about it Next thing you know, mom and pop get, get hit and they lose their business. And I think it's a shame. And I think we do need, you know, active uh, retribution on some of these ransomware gangs at some point uh, because we've gotten to a point where we just let them walk all over us, you know. And if you pay, if you pay the ransom, they're going to come right back to you. I've seen double extortion where a company pays ransom, they get their shit unlocked, and then the, the gang comes back a month later and does it again. Um, so you're not even guaranteed to even have your network unencrypted. You know, it, they're just running like the wild, wild west. They have no consequences whatsoever. No, I mean, it's the best retirement plan you can have. <laughs> you're, I mean, you're, you're guaranteed. I mean, that's why uh, I was, I don't remember which group it was, but I saw one of the, the heads of it had his, uh, his wedding and they gave away a Ferrari as a door prize at his wedding. You know? Yeah. So I mean, that's, that's shocking. Yeah, I'm in the wrong yeah. business. I was gonna say, I, I, if I wasn't, uh, if I wasn't a, a good guy, I could make a lot of money as a bad guy. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I've been studying a lot, uh, doing research and practicing attacks on old methods of attack, like RF. Uh, being a T brancher, you know, I, I love RF, and there's nothing more efficient than compromising something that's driven by RF, because a lot of companies have no measures whatsoever to protect against RF attacks. Uh, and look at GSM and, and cell phones and the things that, that we can do with cell phones that would just blow your mind. Mm -hmm. um, I did a talk in Oklahoma and just recently, and I, I was telling people how, you know, I can get on your phone, open up an app, take a screenshot, download that screenshot of your two-factor authentication app and then compromise your account. And they were just shocked that you could do that. And I said that, you know, that little device you hold in the palm of your hand can actually take people to the moon. You know, there's a lot of power in those little devices. And a lot of people don't understand the threat of the mobile landscape. And I think that we're going to start seeing a lot more ransomware attacks on a carrier level mm -hmm. as far as communications go. Yeah, 5G. I mean, it's uh, most 5G is already in a compromised state. And it's 5G is again another one of those faster is not better. Um, and we can't go rip out and start from scratch. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm, I'm in the same boat as you. Like, I think that that's, the, a vector that's going to become much more realistic uh, outages and DOSs and those types of things at, at, you know, region levels. Yeah, definitely. And RF is just so much fun. Uh, and it, it's crazy that people don't actually like get on the internet and do a little bit of research and see the type of attacks you can carry out with just a simple hack RF kit, you know, um, and they're effective. And if you really want to exfiltrate data out of a network, use RF. Nobody will ever find out. Uh, 
and there's there's easy ways to do it. Uh, so, what is your passion outside of cybersecurity? Cybersecurity. What do you like to do when you're not neck deep in cyber and, and all the you know political stuff? Uh, I play golf a lot. I lift weights. Um, I'm I'm I like those two things because uh, you know I, I like to compete with myself. Um, not a I just I've I've never been a fan of um, team sports because I don't I, I don't I don't like to have that easy out of blaming somebody else when my day sucks. Like if you're playing bad golf, it's because you're playing bad golf. If you're not able to, you know, push the weight, it's something with you. I, I just get, it's, um, it's a good way, I think for, um, mentally, right. For, for me. Uh, and I'm, I mean, I had a health scare this year, so I'm trying to take some more time and not work nonstop. Um, and it's, you know, when the weather gets back to being good again, uh, be out on the course more <laughs> cool yeah i've tried golf a couple times but golf doesn't necessarily uh agree with me I, I'm, I'm no good once it gets to the green i'm screwed yeah. yeah i can drive but once it gets to the green forget it uh so a question off topic um mm-hmm. being that we're both from you know quarry station alum uh big daddies you ever go to big daddies <laughs> yeah i mean if you've been to quarry station everybody's been there yeah <laughs> Yeah, it's pretty awesome. Uh, it was funny because I was uh, training for a fight. Down. I was a pro boxer for a while and uh, was training on the base and went to uh, Big Daddy's and met Roy Jones Jr. Ended up training in his gym for a while. Right. He, yeah, he uh, he lives down there. Yeah, yeah in Pensacola. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so it was pretty cool. I met with him and, and then they started doing tough man contests. And I was working corners at Big Daddy's helping the guys train because they wouldn't let me compete. But you know, it was fun to help those guys out. But yeah, Big Days is uh, legendary when it comes to uh, CTs going to school in, in Quarry Station. Yeah. That, and uh, there was a place downtown in Pensacola. I can't remember the name of it. It was connected to a piano bar. And then yeah, it had uh, Seville Quarter. Seville Quarter, yeah. Many, many yeah. nights in Seville Quarter. Stumbled through that place a few times. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I mean... Things like that. I, I miss those days. I, I look back at some of the people that I went to uh, school with and, and what they're doing now. Um, and they're all doing the same kind of the same work that we're doing. Uh, it seemed like everybody transitioned from BNCTs into the cyber industry, which is really important, too. I think that as an industry goes, we're basically powered and fueled by a lot of veterans. Um, I think a lot of the leaders in our space you know, come from the military. And I think that's I, I think it's great. Uh, I've been on a couple of veteran podcasts. I uh, was on one with uh, Jack Scott. And veterans in cybersecurity do so much for the industry. And uh, it lead a lot of it. Um, so where do you think that we could go or what direction do you think we should go to make our industry better? What's your biggest complaint about our industry? Uh, I mean, the biggest complaint that I have really is uh, just the market dynamics that are taking place, um, like the, the valuations of technologies and companies that are um, getting thrown through the roof by these VCs when it's, I mean, it's really not helping a lot of times and it's just money for the sake of money. Uh, and it's, it just drives things in the wrong direction. You know, I think, um, I think we need more strategy, less tech. Um, that type of thing. And I, I think um, the one thing that drives me bonkers outside of the market is that we don't punish negligence when we know what negligence is. I, I think that there should be CEOs and CISOs that are in a uh, six by nine cell. 
Um, and the fact that they get to walk with a multi-million dollar payday makes me rage. Like I just, um, these, you know, if you're a CISO and you're getting a million dollar a year salary and you have uh, a password, a passwordless server on the internet, you should go to jail. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Or you, you haven't patched for vulnerability that's like 10 years old. Um, I mean, that's I, negligence. You know, we know what negligence is. You can't do it in the airline industry. Why can you do it in cyber? Exactly. And we're getting to a point as an industry, too, where the FBI is even helping people out, breaking into their uh, servers and patching for them, which I thought was a, a really unique situation. Do you consider that breaking a law or, you know, being a Robin Hood and trying to help out? Like, I, I, I still have a hard time wrapping my head around what they did and what I did. And I was facing charges and they were helping out. Like, it, I don't know. It's, just, it's, it's confusing. And yeah. I think that as cyber law goes, I think a lot of cyber law is very confusing. Title 10 authority. Beautiful thing. <laughs> right. Um, so last question before we wrap things up, um, you know, if, if you could have your perfect career or your perfect job, your ideal job that you would go home every day and feel fulfilled, what would that be? I mean, I think I have it now. I'm, I'm pretty, I'm pretty jazzed about the work I do and the people I get to work with and the, the fact that it, um, you know, seems to matter and that it, I think that there's some difference being made. The only thing I wish I could do more of is uh, work with the folks that, um, that need more of the help, right? Because I mean, this is a demand driven space and you, I mean, I've done a lot of pro bono stuff. I did some stuff recently for like a battered women's shelter, that type of thing. I'd love to do more of that, but there's only so many hours in the day and there's so much, there's so many folks that need assistance. You know, you you have to pick and choose. Um, so I wish if I was to have more perfect, it'd be, I had more time to do more work. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I, I'm pretty much the same. I, I really love my job uh, and who I work with and uh, the type of stuff I do. Cause not only do I manage the NDR, but I work on the red team. I also do incident response. I mean, I get a chance to see all of it and not just a very siloed piece of it. I think to make the industry better, I think more people need that experience. I think they need to see, the IRs. I think they need to be involved in other companies' IRs and be part of a red team. That way they can see the effect of, of every part of cybersecurity. And then maybe maybe then they'll take things like patching seriously. Um, but I think we're a ways off from that. Well, Chase, I want to thank you for coming on the show and agreeing to uh, meet with me. It's been a pleasure. And uh, you're welcome back anytime. And thanks for spending an hour of my birthday with me. Yeah, that's really cool. Uh, and, uh, you know, any last words, questions for me or, or the group? Well, number one, happy birthday. Uh, number two, thanks. always good to talk to another CT. So, you know, thanks for having me on, um, great work and, uh, look forward to chatting with you again in the future. Stay safe. Absolutely. You too. All right, guys, until next, uh, episode, um, be safe and be kind to each other. And, uh, I'll talk to you then. Thanks again, Chase.